Welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange with Leander Young, where we dig into conversations with seasoned musicians to discuss their life, art, and the faith of jazz as they see it. In this episode, we interview a composer, educator, and organist from Columbus, Ohio, Tony Monaco. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange. Today, we have a guest that my engineer really wanted me to interview, which is cool, <laughs> Mr. Tony Monaco. Sir, thank you for joining us. God bless you. It's nice to meet you, Leander. How are you? Nothing. I mean, he saw you perform, and he was doing the engineer work at the concert over there, and I guess you knocked him off his feet. I, I don't know. I love your stuff, but I didn't expect him to be that hyped. <laughs> oh, that's great, man. It's an honor to be here. And, you know, I'm privileged to feel uh, to be a part of your fans and your your show. So this is great. Well, can you give you a short intro about yourself and then we'll get into it? OK, my name is Tony Monaco and I'm a jazz organ Ammon B3 player. I've played for 50 years as a professional musician and I've toured around the world with many great artists, including people like Pat Martino and Harvey Mason. And I've seen audiences all around the world, and I'm still a student of music. Okay. Well, the first thing I need to ask you, because mm -hmm. I think you're the first B-free player we had. It's a dying instrument. Why do you think that is? Well, I think uh, one of it, was the fact that, you know, they stopped making the real B3s in 1976. And it's a big, heavy thing. And, you know, in today's world with gig prices staying the same as they were 20 years ago, it's hard to afford to be able to move these things economically to, to stay uh, in business. Well, thank God recently to the invention of the digital age and the new modern, what they call clones, which are like uh, Hammond organ replicas in a digital version. I think you're going to see this resurgence uh, of this instrument. Plus, you know, it's conducive. Like if you're not playing uh, bass, uh, then, you know, you'll hear the Hammond organ everywhere. It's in your commercials. It's in the blues music that you listen to. It's definitely heavily saturated in gospel music. But when it comes to mainstream uh, rock and roll and stuff, I think you, you probably are not seeing or hearing it as much in there. But, you know, it's got its niche. It's a niche thing, I, I suppose, it would be the best way to describe it. Okay. Well, off the top of my head, mm -hmm. at least for the past 10 years, I couldn't think of anybody under 30, if not under 40, that released an album of an organ. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. It's it's one of those fringe things. Now, you'll hear the organ in it, Yeah. in but, the music, but you're not seeing organ players as the leaders making. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. Man, like I said, it's a niche thing. You know, that's why I keep releasing records. I keep releasing them. Uh, you know, I'm old enough to call them records. Uh, I've, uh, I've been releasing music for uh, 
you know, my whole life. And that's kind of how I stay in business. You know, I release them. I have a radio campaign that goes around all the jazz stations, keeps my name in circulation and tells the prospective buyers that I'm still in business, you know. So I got to keep my music exciting, fresh, kind of vintage, but new, if that makes any sense. I got to ask, so how do you keep it new? I write a lot of my own tunes. So like a lot of times, uh, you know, like when jazz organ, you know, this is not the first time that the Hammond organ has slumped, you know. In the 70s, the generation that, that was preceding Jimmy Smith and Jimmy McGriff and Groove Holmes and all the names that your parents know well, you know, uh, the organ started to go down, you know. And so what a lot of people started to do was try to record what was contemporary on, at the time on the organ when they were releasing it. And you were hearing people play a lot of tunes like I Love You More Today Than Yesterday, Charles Erland. That became his big hit. You know, uh, you heard a lot of people recording What's Going On and Every day, you know, uh, I got the blues and re-trying re, re to recreate a new, a new generation of listeners. But it wasn't really until the late 80s when that young man who just passed away last year, his name was Joey DeFrancesco. I was going to ask you about him later on. but <laughs> He played so darn good, you know, that he got everybody's attention that it was hip to play the instrument again. So I'm here because I'm, a, I'm of the wave that Joey DeFrancesco rekindled because I had been playing organ my whole life, but I was too young to be in the Jimmy Smith, Jimmy McGriff generation. I was too old to be something new. But then when Joey came out, he renewed the art of what I do because I never really changed what I did. I just changed my styles a little bit. I play more funky music now, more groove tunes, one of my re releases, so they get some airplay, you know. Okay, two things on that. So the whole cover of like late 60s, early 70s songs that you mentioned, I like it, but I hate it at the same time because it's pretty much like you're just trying to grab the few listeners that love that song so much yeah. and then convert them into jazz lovers and they yeah. don't tend to stay jazz lovers. Nah. They love that one song by that one artist, that one arrangement, and then they might have that on their mix. The end. They're never really going to perform. I mean, go out to see them perform. Absolutely. I'm with you 100%. Even when today I'll play What's Going On or Let's Stay Together or, you know, those kind of tunes. Man, they're so cliche now, you know. It's like it's hard for me to even stay interested in trying to create something new. Now, what Joey did is he went to the next generation, the 80s, started playing tunes like, uh, uh, oh, God, my, my mind just slipped me. Sorry. It's okay. Because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm young. <laughs> uh, you know, but tunes like What You Can't Do For Love and, you know, all of those, those yeah, 80s. Once again, same yeah, thing. That's what I same, did. It no, really I get it. <laughs> I get it. That's why I write my own tunes. I like to write my own tunes. Problem is, you know, I'm in such a small genre. My tunes don't go out very wide. They don't go out too far. I you mean, know, I tried to say that in a nice way earlier, even though I knew who you were. I like your yeah. stuff. It's just that I get it. The, the DJs on the jazz stations 
I guess, didn't grow up with organists. They don't really yeah. see the appeal of organists. And that's yeah. why I unfortunately fear that in by the time I'm your age, no one's going to be playing this thing. I, you know, listen, man, I'm so glad we're doing this interview because, uh, you know, you're getting real with me and I like that. You know, I'll tell you what I had to do in order to adjust Please to do. the void that, you know, that you're speaking of. Because there's a big void for organ players, right? There's You don't see my tour schedule like I'm going out on tour for six months all around the globe. You know, I go here for a weekend. I go over there for a week. And, I go well, over there. To be and fair, then I'm I think there's only like 10 jazz artists that could go on a real, legit world tour. Exactly. And they got big names and they became names back in the day when I know these are small numbers, but they were big for jazz when a CD release would sell 30, 40,000 copies. Thank you. Now you don't even sell 500, man. You, you said know. it. I say it all the time. You see, he said it, people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, absolutely. I'm going to shoot straight with you because I'm in the business. I've been in it my whole life. What I did was I created a niche of organ students that I teach online. I developed a method of teaching people online. So I teach about 20 to 25 students a week right in my space. So when I'm not on the road, I'm paying the bills. And so I developed an online school because, you know, after playing this instrument for 50 years, I must know a few things. Okay, but right? question on the school part. How do you teach them the footwork online? <laughs> well, I tell them to come over here and I show them what it feels like to get kicked. <laughs> you know, the footwork, man, footwork is a hard thing. You got to play a lot to, do, to develop it, really, yes. you know, yeah. I rip on my one of my alma maters, Juilliard, but they have this grand organist, grand huge one on like the third floor, I think I believe it was, or the fourth floor. And oh just God. watching the people practice it is just a work of art alone. And then they're it pulling hurts. the stitches and they're doing all changing. I think it's magical. <laughs> but the fact that, like I said, we can't even get it in jazz anymore. Forget mainstream. Half our yeah. instruments are not useful anymore. No, you're absolutely correct on that. You know, I'm glad I'm at an age where, you know, I got my own little niche. I make my money teaching online. I got a little bit of income coming monthly for my school. When I go out and play a couple nice heavy hitters, I make a little bit of money, but I'm never going to make it rich. You know, this is not something to get rich at this point in time. It's basically to maintain my market and continue to try to grow as well as I can in that market with realistic expectations. If that means in teaching in my house, I don't have to buy a bunch of expensive clothes all the time. You know, I can wear the same jeans as long as I wash it, wear the same T-shirts and teach for a month and I'm still in business. But, you know, if I'm on the road, man, you got to be buying clothes. You got to be your vehicles are breaking down. You're, you're sometimes spending more money than you're got coming in. That's a whole other of a conversation because a lot of yeah. new groups don't last because they don't want to do the road yeah the road is miserable especially the road when we first hard start work, man hard work and there's a lot of over glamorization of this field man. i must say <laughs> okay so and it will kill you if you especially if you have addictive tendencies uh there's no place to usually go after the gig but the bar you know so a lot of musicians end up unfortunately Alcoholics. Getting caught up in alcoholism, you know. So I've seen it. I've experienced it. My best friend Roy Hargrove is a good example. 
you know. I was going to ask you about him also later, but you see, he's, oh, wow. being, he's being super real from the jump, people. I wow. love this. Well, you know, <laughs> there you go. But you're right. That's how a lot of them become alcoholics or stem into other stuff. You see it all the time in the field. The boredom. You yes. Know. You do your gig for 90 minutes and then it's yeah. like you're in the city and half these cities there's nothing to do. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's not geared for the regular person. It's geared for the exciting nightlife. We don't have the money. So the club's paying for drinks. Where are we going? We're going to the bar, you know. Because so, you can't drink out of the mini bar. It's too expensive. If you're a musician, you can't drink out of the mini bar. <laughs> True. <laughs> okay, so how did you get around that part? I joined AA. <laughs> I'm not promoting it, but I had an addictive personality and it almost killed me out there, you know. But one day I had to make the realization that I love music more than I love that. And I was able to, you know, by the grace of God, find a a group of people that helped me uh, get my act together, so to speak. And uh, now I, I, I center my life around my uh, staying clean more so than the excitement of look at me, look how great I am. Okay. It's an ego thing too, right? I mean, we all have an ego. That's one thing every yeah. jazz artist I could gladly say has. Yeah. <laughs> and you heard some of my other guests. I don't know if you have. Some of them have huge egos. Love them, but yeah. <laughs> that kills us. That's that's what kills us, you know. Especially when what's happening around us doesn't match the story that we're trying to tell. Give that's when self-destruction begins, you, you know. Huh? An example of that, if you don't mind? What do you mean? Well, okay, you know, so I'm so great. You know, look at me how great I am. You know, but the gigs are falling apart and I'm not making any money. And I'm driving, you know, well, I don't even have a car to drive, you know, but look how great I am. You know, there's, there's a, there's a, there's a gap in the truth there. And I think sometimes we got to cover that truth by like basically going to some kind of oblivion state, you know. Okay. This is far more real than I have expected. And I'm loving it so far. Okay. <laughs> you know. <laughs> <laughs> I was in an elevator with Red Skelton when I was 12, man. <laughs> Doesn't get more real than that. <laughs> okay, so, okay, even then, you get invited to some of these big jazz festivals. Yes. Are you even getting paid like that? Because I'll be the first one to say, when I'm there now, I'm like, A, it's half empty. B, the gig prices ain't as kicking as I would hope or yeah. everyone expects. They think they make it to like, name your favorite jazz festival. I'm get on the stage there. Everything's going to turn around. I got a couple staple gigs that I've developed. Like for instance, I played this Java jazz festival in Jakarta, Indonesia, and I've played it now 17 years in a row. I missed the first year because they didn't know me. I started the second year, but I created a job for myself because when we go to some of these festivals, all the musicians of the festivals are put up in the same hotel. And so here you are in Jakarta, Indonesia, that you know where you, you don't go out at night because it's a third world country. There's nowhere to go, you know. So all the great jazz musicians are in a hotel, including guys like Herbie Hancock and you know, George Duke, he and I became really good friends because of that. 
you know, some of the biggest artists in the world are at these festivals and there's the one, they're the ones that's making the money, you know, the, the big show that's going to sell out. The rest of us are there to fill in the gap of the schedule, but we're not making that kind of money. Right. So I suggested to the promoter after my third year, I said, well, that's why I'm here. So many, there so many years. I said, man, why don't we start a jam session in the bar? Because being an organ player, that's an advantage I have. I play my own bass. So all I need is somebody to play the drums and we can play Mr. Magic if you want, you know, no problem, you know. So I started a jam session. So every year they bring me back mainly for the fact that I run the jam session, which keeps all the musicians happy in the hotel. And then, of course, I'll go do a show or two at the venue, be featured with different artists, usually Indonesian artists, because one of my things that I try to do is I try to reach into the cultures that I'm at because, you know, there's great musicians everywhere, man, you know. And you take these third world countries, that's where some of the better musicians are because they don't have anything else to do but practice all day. So there's some killing musicians in these places, you know. So, you know, can you make some money? Yeah, you just got to – it's not overnight. It's 17 years, man, you know. So now that I've, I've got a position where they – you know, and, and listen, man, when you think you got it, that's when it's over. So, you know, I'm in a, in a healthy position that, you know, they, 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 they can still use my talents. And uh, so I've been fortunate, you know, to, to go back. Uh, there's those once in a while jazz gigs that come around that are too good to be true. And you play them one time and you never play them again because either the festival goes under because they – they had too big of dreams in the first place because it's not a reality. Like you said, if you got a half empty house and nobody's buying seats and the other half is half guested, you know, that's another thing, man. There's a lot of people wanting to be guested in these shows, you know, uh -huh. like you don't ever talk to them all year. But all of a sudden you're getting ready to go on a show and you got texts, you know, from everybody that lives in that city. Hey, Tony, great to see. You. I'm so glad you're in town. You know, can you guess me? And my answer is, I'm sorry, I can't. I don't guess. I have a policy that I don't guess unless it's somebody I want to guess. You know what I mean? Because I got to give the promoter a shot at making some profit. They took the risk to bring me out, you know. And I, I kind of see that a lot where musicians just overly guessed everybody, you know. It's like, wait a minute. You're not thinking about the promoter. You know, we're, we're, we're serving somebody, you know. And that's the reality of life, isn't it? You know? No, I mean... We all got somebody to serve, you know? And that's something else that even what... And I'm not even talking on the podcast, just in real life. Some of the artists, when I try to explain to them, even though it did happen on the air a few times, I try to explain to them the risk that the owner has when he's trying to even open a jazz bar. How much he has to put up in front, how much he has to put in the advertisement, how many money he has to put into that. Uh, what's it called? To guess, like like you yeah. said, the appearance of the performers. And then he's hoping that people come back. And then he's hoping people buy drinks. Then he's hoping. Yeah. We only a great amount of us look at it only one side. How much is this gig paying me? Yeah. What am I getting out of it? And our society's kind of gone that way. And you look at social media and everything, it's all about me, 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 you know. It's gotten pretty narcissistic, really. So what would you do to change that? Do you have anything? Any idea? 
Well, you know, I'll tell you, I came up from the, you know, my, my, I'll just give you one story. This is the greatest story I have because this is a reality. You know, when I grew up learning how to play music, the only way you could learn how to play a lick was take the needle off the album and push it back and hope you could play that lick enough before you scratch the record. Right? Yes. And so you could, you know, if you're really a musician, you learn from your, your ears or your eyes anyhow. So you got your eyes closed. You hear every grunt. You hear all the stuff in the background because you're, you're, you're in it. You know, that's how we learn. So I had found this record uh, that was self-produced by Jimmy Smith on his own little label called Mojo Records because he was always Blue Note, Verve, you know, all the big labels. But he had his own little hand in, you know, producing some self-produced records, right? And I think his uh, second wife, Lola, who was in California, had something to do with that. I think she was a brilliant uh, business person. Um, and so uh, I started sending cassette tapes to this address with love letters and pictures to Jimmy Smith. And I was playing this stuff on accordion, man. You know, Could you imagine what Jimmy Smith was thinking? You're getting this this Italian kid playing blues on the accordion. You I know? mean, I had a guest playing the accordion before, but now <laughs> not Jimmy Smith. So I'm got- playing the chicken shack and stuff on the accordion, man. That's pretty so. cool. <laughs> <laughs> it was cool. So what happened was, I don't believe in coincidences. I do believe in God. On my 16th birthday, I was sleeping. It was about 3 a.m. Jimmy must have just closed the set for the for the set, you know, midnight in L.A. My father came to wake me up. He said, you got to come to the phone. So I get to the phone. I, I put my the phone in my ear and I hear this raspiness. I knew I got chills. It was Jimmy Smith. And he told me, he said, Tony Monaco, he said, Jimmy Smith. And I already knew that my heart stopped. You know, it was like God was calling, you know, and and, and the moral to the story is coming because this is important. He gave me the most important musical lesson I've ever had in my life since then. He told me, one, you play too many notes because, I, you know, every kid wants to play every note, you know, in the book, you know. And second, he told me, you need to learn how to play the right chords. And I thought he was referring to the chords in the in the real books, you know. But now I, I've come to understand that he was talking about you got to know the harmony. So that if you're going to change your solo, you're going to change your sound. You got to change the chords. You know, people like Corey Henry are experts at that. Right. So that lesson he gave me was so important. But, you know, I was kind of scared when he called, you know, because his voice, he always sounded a little bit like he was mad, you know. I, I ended up playing in his supper club about three three years later, and he and his wife Lola were sitting right in front of me. One of the biggest things that ever happened to me in my life, in my in my passion for playing the organ, you know. But you know, I'm thinking about it today with the. This is going to answer the social media fix question that you asked me, I'm but I had story. to lead it this way because you know, having that narrow scope of opportunity to speak to the master, the master was a blessing. Today, people can reach you disrespectfully 
because it's no big deal to them to track you down and infringe upon your information, your knowledge, your kindness, all of that. And they don't even know how to say thanks. So how can you develop appreciation for life and a love and appreciation for music if you can't even say thanks? That's my thought about social media. I think it's made it too easy for people to abuse the fact that it's so easy. And, you know, we're kind of conditioned as musicians that we're supposed to take it all, that we're supposed to, you know. But yet, you lose your dignity this way today. And that's why Spotify owns the music business, not the people that are playing on Spotify, because the business part of it is gone. It's all about, look at me, how many likes I got. I even asked one of this person, this, you get texts, I don't know, you probably get them in your messages, you know, on your social media. Please like this. Oh, yeah, all the time. So I asked this one guy, not, but I am going to lead to that because there's an answer to that too. I asked one of my, my this guy that was, I said, what do you get for this likes? Do you get pennies? Do you get money? No, he says, I don't know, I just get likes. Oh, okay. So that's what we've re that's what we've come to. Throw me a fish, and I'll play you a trick. I mean, we'll even go to the Spotify thing. I literally could tell you. I could literally pull up people that are in high school who will never buy your album, but want you to buy their album because that's their mindset. In other yeah. words, music is free right. in their world. Yeah. So. As bad as Spotify is, and trust me, I can tell you a whole bunch of things I don't like about it. Yeah. It got people to at least, okay, some people, because the majority of people still don't pay for it. They pay $10 a month. Right. And you get pennies on what you used to get. Now, the problem with the album sales is that how many people were actually buying albums even, even going to the 90s? Like you said, if you were selling 20,000 albums, you were the yeah. man. Yeah. Now we sell 500 if we're lucky. I don't know many people selling 500. Exactly. I'm just talking about in the life of a project. You know? Oh, yeah, yeah. Of life of a project, yeah. So That's not much, you know. It's not even enough to cover the, the A&R man, you know. They want you to mail out like 200. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> I got to pay the radio promoter now. <laughs> so of course, I got to pay I three grand to the radio promoter to try to get it played. I mean, that's By the time also, I'm done with the project, I got ten grand in it, and no way to make that money back. Ten grand, than, you're, you're doing good. You that's know, hopefully. Well, you know, I I, I self-produce everything. I oh. got my studio right here. You know. See what I mean? And I said it's that not before. Not Rudy Van Gelder. You I know, said on the low end, you're spending ten thousand dollars for an album. He's actually just you verified the stuff I said in the past, so I'm glad. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so okay. That's including the promotion and the cover and everything else yes. and the musicians, you know. And it, it can't be produced like that stuff used to be produced like. There's not the income to do it unless somebody's a cash cow, you know. Well, you're going to have to be like that artist that has a day job who does this at the night and says, I want my album recorded. Uh, what's the name of the studio in New Jersey that Joey used to go to all the time? Oh, uh, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Well, you go to one of those huge studios yeah, and say, yeah. this is just for me. I don't expect yeah. a profit. Yeah. 
now as you can guess, you're only going to get like one album from that. That's person. where we're at. Yeah, that's what that's what we've become as jazz musicians. I mean, that's sure. everybody in general. I mean, even going to most pop artists now, they have yeah. one or two songs. They yeah. think they're bigger than they are. The label just drops them and moves on. Yeah, because they're not making any money no, off of them. They're not making any money. They, no. Most of them are getting money off streams too. Yeah. And that's a whole no, you can't be making money off of streams. That's what I'm saying. I think that's the big illusion now. You know, I agree. other than the ones or twos that are are are, are getting millions and millions of plays, there's I mean, like a million that's getting one or two plays. You know, most of them don't make any money off it. And even I know a few A list people that get yeah. all the streams you're thinking about. They're not yeah. making money like you think. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I believe you. I believe you. So let's talk about something else because, you know, yeah. So the Out of Nowhere album. Loved yeah. it. Okay. Okay. Thank you. How did you meet Joey and how did you get him on there? Because that was one of my first times I saw him play something other than a keyboard instrument. Which was <laughs> like, ah. <laughs> well, that's funny. The Out of Nowhere album has a history of itself because uh, let's just say that I met Joey uh We've been real, so let's just keep going there. Mm -hmm. um, I had raised three daughters, and uh, in order to do that, I couldn't make enough ever playing music locally. So I ran a construction business. That's how I made my my money to be able to pay for my daughter's colleges and weddings. It wasn't from playing the organ. And uh, in 1998, my dad uh, developed lung cancer. He and I were real close, and I was running his construction business. I was also in the middle of my first divorce uh, the, the, with the woman that I had my three daughters with. And so it was, it was one of those times in my life I'm losing my father to lung cancer. He was very young. I was almost 40 myself. He was 64. And um, so... With, with with the weight of my father and I had to be there to take care of everything uh, for him and my mom to set my mom up uh, and and you know getting a divorce was a lot of lot of stress for me at that time. So I reverted over to 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 going to see a spiritual counselor because I didn't know why God had given me this talent for music, but it was definitely not happening in my life. So, I was thinking about maybe becoming a deacon of the church because I, I am quite uh, uh, a Catholic. I, I, I believe in, in the faith. And uh, so I, was, I, I had given up my musical talent to God because I, I, I didn't know what he wanted me to do with it. And uh, my father was dying and I was in the middle of a divorce and everything. Well, right after my father died, six months later, they were opening up a club in Columbus called the 501 Jazz Bar. And the a lifelong friend of mine, musician friend, called me on the phone and said, hey, Tony, we're opening up this new jazz club in Columbus and they're bringing Joey D. Francesco here. Now, mind you, this is not to belittle anything. I had all my Jimmy Smith albums and Groove Holmes albums and all of them downstairs in a box in a basement by this time in my life. I'm running a construction business, you know. I didn't really even know who Joey DeFrancesco was, although I knew there was this young kid coming up that was really good because I heard some tracks 
and it got my attention. That's about as much as I knew about Joey at the time. So I told my friend Jim, I said, uh, hey, you know, I'll bet you Joey's tired of being on the road all the time. Can I take him out to dinner? He says, that's great. He says, because we got to, you know, we got to take him to cover the band's dinners and everything. If you'd like to take him out to dinner, that'd be great. It'd help us. So great. Okay. So we arranged it. Joey comes into town and um, I hadn't played the organ in two years, at least two or three, because all of this going on, my father had passed and Divorce was final, and I'm running this construction business. That's where my life is right now, the day gig, you know. And um, when I called to see where to go pick up Joey, they said, well, you got to go to this career center. It was Fort Hayes. It's where I actually went to high school on a on the career side to, to do some music lessons with Hank Marr, who was a Columbus legend, organ player. And so when I went to go pick up Joey, he was given a clinic. This is a this is an amazing thing because this is the way it really works. And so I had no idea he was going to do a clinic. So some people in the audience told Joey, said, hey, Joey, Tony's here. He says, oh, yeah, that's the guy that's taking me out to dinner. And they said, no, you don't understand. You got to hear Tony play the organ. And Joey said, well, you didn't tell me you played the organ. I said, well, Joey, I didn't think it was that important, really. So all of a sudden, he asked me to come up and play. So I'm playing music I hadn't played in years with Joey DeFrancesco sitting over there, you know, at the peak of his career, you know. He's like a fine-tuned Ferrari, you know. And uh, he, uh, he, he had his drummer Byron Landham there, and I grabbed a couple of grooves. Well... I looked at Joey and he looked at me and I knew that he was looking at me with admiration. And on the way to dinner, he told me, he says, what are you doing with your music career? And I explained to him that I'd given it up and I was trying to become a deacon of the church. I got turned down because I was getting divorced. And uh, he says, why don't you come to Phoenix and I'll produce an album for you, which was out of nowhere. So he did that out of the kindness of his heart, and I believe that there was some divine inspiration there to make that all happen. So uh, that that's where we developed our friendship, and uh, that was the start of my uh, musical career for in in the in the world stage. That's when I I left Columbus, Ohio. He helped me do this, you know. Well, God did it I through Joey. Still, the far better story than I expected. Okay. Well, the truth, you know. Uh, I don't really know much to follow up on that, but. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I got a funny story to tell you about Out of Nowhere. Yes. Please. So when I went to record, you know, one of the songs I played was Out of Nowhere. You yes. know, so I asked Joey, what do you think we should call it? He said, Out of Nowhere, you know. So I produced Out of Nowhere, and it has, if you have that disc, that's rare because. What ended up happening on the next phase was getting a record deal. And, you know, to try to get a record deal, <laughs> every yeah. freaking record label has their own ideas. Well, I had to actually incorporate, if you look up the album called Burning Grooves, Burning, Burning Grooves is out of nowhere minus a few tracks with a few new blues tracks added to please a record label to release it. 
Oh. A Water Down Out of Nowhere is called, which became my hit record, was Burning Grooves. Okay. Isn't that amazing? Yes, and I know the record label I think off out of the top of my head, so I'm not going to say it. <laughs> no, that's okay. Like, Burning Grooves, I think, I can't remember. There was one or two tracks that had to be removed, and uh, a couple blues tunes was added to make it uh, sellable according to the record label, you know. So uh, the artist doesn't even have their own integrity anymore. You don't. Unless you self-produce it and put it out and take the risk of nothing, you know, basically. Okay. Well, do you still do the construction on the side or is it just full over? No, you know, finally, uh, what happened in 2006, you know, what preceded the stock market crash in 2008 yes. was the construction industry. What happened is these builders started uh, changing the numbers. They would have their own appraisers and they would have their own in-house finance companies yes and what they would do is they'd under appraise the house so that the buyer could qualify for the loan they would give the buyer the loan because right after they sold the house you know they were selling the loans they'd sell them to the chase and all the big companies that you know yes bank of america's you know so they were selling these banks bad loans so what happened at the end of 2006 we went from you know, a full a full time business of, you know, they're digging houses and putting houses in the ground to all of a sudden nothing. It stopped because once the money stopped, so did the house building. So in 2007, I was forced to be a full time musician for the first time in my life. And I haven't looked back since, man. You know, that's why I teach online. That's why I have a school. That's why I go perform. And I've downsized myself to the point where. You know, I don't have too many expenses that could kill me, you know. Okay. Yeah. I, okay, so, okay, let me ask about Roy. <laughs> How did you meet Roy? How do I what? How did you meet Roy? Roy Hargrove. Yes. Okay, well, this this uh, this is a, uh, emotional for me because I loved Roy. I thought Roy was one of the greatest musicians I've ever met. Mm -hmm. um, I met Roy at Java Jazz. Because remember I said I started that jam session? Yes. That For all the musicians in the hotel? Well, Roy, Roy was there with his RH Factor band, and uh, uh, he came down to, you know, little soft-spoken short guy. He said, I'd like to play a ballad. I didn't even know it was Roy yet, you know. Then I said, what do you want to play? He said, you know, uh, uh, not everything must change. Um, never let me go. He wanted to play Never Let Me Go on a trumpet. And I love the trumpet because, you know, uh, uh, Lee, um, uh, Lee Morgan on all the Jimmy Smith records, you know, man, that's the greatest tracks on Jimmy Smith was the trumpet and Roy Hargrove ended up recording with Jimmy Smith, uh, in his later and Jimmy Smith's later life and in, in the up and coming of Roy, Roy Hargrove's career. So he played this ballad 
And, you know, nobody requests to play ballads anymore. They don't even have the patience to play one, nor do they have the talent to play it, right? Roy Hargrove's come in, and he plays Never Let Me Go With Me, and we became friends. And uh, I, I, I think you know that Roy had some things. Yes. And, um, you know, so I, I sort of became like, how do I put this in a way that doesn't, that sounds right? He trusted me enough to, 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 to be there for him. So every time he came to Java Jazz, me and Roy were hanging around all the time. And he'd kind of like hang out behind me and say, who's that? Who's that? I don't want to talk to him. He'd say, <laughs> so I'd kind of, I'd kind of guard him from, from like, I was like, you know, Roy was a super guy, you know. And, but he was a sensitive young musician, you know, in art, you know. But man, no matter what happened, when he picked up that trumpet, God came out of it, man, you know. So Roy and I became really good friends. I was really sad uh, when I heard of his passing. I mean, because, I mean, I, there's not many musicians like that today, man, you know. So Roy, he's got a special place in my heart forever. Mm, okay. Yeah, he's like he was like a brother, you know. We became that good of friends, you know, so that we were natural with each other. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. he, he's, he's a character. We'd hang out in the hotel room all day listening to tunes, and all he did all day was listen to, to, to tunes, and he'd spit out the licks when they were being played. Here, here it comes, here it comes. <laughs> he, was, he was devout. He was a real musician, you know. Do you see any of your students or just people in general that devout? Yeah, you know, there's there's always people coming up and stuff that have a, a passion for music, but as much passion as he had and as much information I have not. But, you know, Roy Hargrove was gifted, man. You know, he was Roy Hargrove. Yeah, I agreed. Yeah. Okay, man. <laughs> Yeah. A few more quick ones and then yeah. I will let you go. Pleasure, hey, you know, we, we, we got the time to talk. Let's talk, you know, because the world needs to hear the truth, right? Okay, from you, what is something that people misunderstand about the music world? Well, they think it's all fun and games. It's not. It's a lot of work and few games. Well, a lot of games being played at you. But the fun part quickly becomes work when, you know, the only fun part we have is the, the, like you said, that 90 minutes on the stage, you know, so if you really want to be a musician, you got to go out on the road a little bit and learn what it really is. You know, it's hard work. Like you said. Okay. If you could turn back time, speak to your 18 year old self, would you talk them into being a musician earlier? Or would you have quit it? Wow. I don't think I would have changed a thing. I've come to, to peace and with myself over it. When I was 18, my father was telling me, I wanted to go, my, my, I had a music teacher, and he wanted me to go to Berkeley. He said, man, you're good enough. You, sh you could go to Berkeley or North Texas State at the time. I'd have probably hung out with Roy. Who knows? But because he was from that area, you know. And uh, But my father, he convinced me that you can't make any money playing music and that 
I needed to run and help him run family businesses like this construction business. We were also in the restaurant business. So I did that many years too. And so I ended up not going to music college. Uh, so I guess if I could do it again, I would have done that part, you know, when I was younger. But then again, when I look back, I'm glad I went the other route because I learned how to do the business part of the music through the business world of life. So now I approach the music business like it's business of music rather than music and there's business to be done. So I'm looking at profit and margin, profit and loss, marketing, realistic things that helps me sustain myself as a real musician where that's why I wouldn't have changed anything because maybe if I had gone to music college, I'd have learned all about the music stuff, but maybe not about how to run the business, you know, how to, how to forecast that you're not going to make it. So you hustle to start changing your model. So you start making some money, you know, I think that's why a lot of musicians go bankrupt is because they don't have that sense of, you know, keeping the books balanced and trying to stay in the black, not in the red. You know, it's important. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't have changed a thing because I'm exactly where I want to be. And I guess I'm exactly where God wants me to be because here I am, you know. <laughs> okay. What is your dream project? If the budget wow. was the situation, if you could have that grand old studio life. Wow. Well, I'll tell you, I really, I really um, would probably like to do a project with uh, And it's possible to even now to do it because, you know, the the names are, are jazz musicians, so it's not like the budget is unlimited. But, you know, uh, I, I really dig Lewis Nash a lot. I don't know. Lewis is one of my favorite drummers. Uh, I'd like to do a project like with Lewis Nash and uh, maybe someone like uh, uh, Jonathan Kreisberg or something like that. Um and of course, I wish I had Roy. That would have been something to do. Uh, but I'm not too far from, you know, having having accomplished something close to that because I've had some pretty nice releases uh, with some pretty great musicians like Adam Nussbaum, Bruce Foreman. Mm -hmm. uh, I've toured a lot with Harvey Mason. I did a record with Pat Martino and Jeff Tane Watts. Yes. You know, I mean, those are... I got a lot of respect for those people. Um, and I'm fortunate to consider them, uh, friends and in, I'm in their league, so to speak, you know, so it's an honor on that. That's not an egotistical statement. It's just, we hang all the time. So it's reality. We always talk about trying to work together. Problem is you can't get a gig to pay everybody enough to go. That was one of my biggest problems. Yes, I agree. I put out East to West with Bruce Foreman and Adam Nussbaum. I figured, you know, that was a record that I was fortunate enough that peaked at number three. It stayed there for a long time. I could never book that band because I could never get enough money to fly Adam from the West uh, East Coast and 
Bruce from the West Coast so we could go play somewhere together. So it sits in the can. It became number three, and we never played together since. You know, that's the problem. Like, unless you got something that you're working with with an agent and you're all living in the same area, you know, so that's another thing because me living in Columbus, Ohio, I don't have the luxury of getting picked up as easy as the cats that live in on the East or West Coast. You know, there's like a group of people that live in New York City, like Clarence Penn. You know, I'm just, that's just one name of many in there, right? Uh, you know, name them. You know, uh, Versace, Gary Versace, uh, Peter Bernstein, you know, the, the greatest musicians in the world that live in New York. Well, they're close. They get picked up a lot to go to Europe tours. So you find them a lot working together because it's easy for a promoter to fly everybody out of JFK. Or if you're on the West Coast and you're hanging, you know, all together with the West Coast gang, because West Coast has gotten really strong, too. And, uh, you know, as a matter of fact, I was just hanging out with Ben, uh, the bass player, Ben. Uh, uh, but we, we I'd met Ben at, at, at Jazz, Java Jazz, you know. Uh, the scene in L.A. where he's coming from now, he told me, is really strong, you know. Ben used to play with Pat Mat Mar Ma uh, Matheny. What's Ben's last name? I want to say Webster. I mean, once I say that, I'm sunk. You know, I can't remember. Now, Williams? Ben Williams. Okay, I was right. Okay, good. I yeah, was he's, <laughs> he's a friend of mine. You know, we hung out. We had breakfast a few times. We played jam sessions together, you know. So what happens is if you live on the West Coast, you get picked up a lot going to Asia. They're always going to Taiwan or, yes. you know, Japan or, Agreed. you know, Singapore, those places, you know. So I think if I, if I, if I would have had any – any change would have been maybe I, if I could have lived in one of those places, you know. But when you're running family businesses, you know, you got to stay where the business is, you know. So no regrets. Just if I had a change that I could have I would have changed that possibly, you know. So. OK. And what is the best compliment you ever received? <laughs> oh. I don't know. I'll tell you the compliments I like. I like when somebody comes to you at the end of the show and they're all excited about the fact that something you played that you didn't even know you played mm -hmm. had changed their life. I hear that coming a lot. I think as musicians, we're kind of like spiritual priests. We're like priests in a way, you know, because we deliver the spiritual side of of the language of God, which is music, you know, it's a language. And a lot of times at the end of the show, I'll have somebody crying or over, over, uh, uh, elated with joy that something that happened in that concert had touched their soul enough that changed their life, gave them the answer, gave them the insight, gave them the permission, those kind of things. Music has that power. And I think, that when we can stay in the music, in, in spite of our ego, it's going to deliver the message because it's strong. You know, it's coming from God, you know. Okay. Well, so those are the biggest compliments I ever get is when people tell me I changed their life or I did something to help them, 
You know, that's right. I mean, isn't that what we're supposed to do as people is be willing to give? You know, that's where it's at. I agree. And, sir, I can honestly say part of the podcast was I wanted people to be real and tell the truth about it. You've been doing that the whole time. Oh, thank <laughs> I'm you, man. more than honored to have you as a guest. And just it's so you know, people, blessing. I screwed up the first time I overslept our interview and he was nice enough to reschedule. <laughs> so I'm graceful on that. Oh, you're so sweet. Thank you very much, Leander. I really appreciate the opportunity. And but, let's stay in touch. I think we just made friends. Likewise. Well, could you tell the people your website, where to contact you? Yeah. So everyone try to buy one of his albums, make it 10 albums. <laughs> yeah. Give me the money, man. <laughs> uh, if you just go to B3, like the Hammond Organ, Monaco, M-O-N-A-C-O, B3Monaco.com, you could get to know all about me. Uh, I'm on all the social medias. As a matter of fact, I have a really cool little thing. It's a group. So if you're into learning uh, uh, music on Facebook, I got a group called Tony Monaco Students and Friends. That's like over now uh, just, you know, 2,000 people. But it's got some of the greatest organ players in the world. So if you want to come and talk about shop, talk about organ, look up Tony's Hang, Tony Monaco Students and Friends on Facebook and join because you get some advice from some of the greatest organ players in the world. And uh, it's a great place. I'm very proud of that accomplishment. So uh, that's it. Just look me up. Tony Monaco. <laughs> I'm a household name. Yes, sir. <laughs> I'm a legend in, in my own mind. <laughs> well, sir, it's been an honor. Thank you so God much. God bless you, Leander. And everyone, this is Leander from Improv Exchange. Thank you. Have a good one. That's that on jazz. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Improv Exchange. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Also, please be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Improv Exchange.